is brighter when we understand the science behind it. Hey friends! Hey! Welcome back to another episode of Getting Brighter, the podcast where we shed light on the science of health, wealth and society. We're breaking down the latest research and providing you with practical tools for positive change. I'm Dr Emily Hughes, a social psychologist. And I'm soon to be Dr Marsha Remska, and my background is in health psychology. Today, we're talking all about digital communication. Yeah, this is something that I'm really interested in. I don't directly research in the area, mm-hmm. but I do a lot of teaching in the area. So I think particularly in the last few years, there's been a lot coming out since the pandemic and that kind of shift through to working online for many people. And I think that's been really kind of inspirational in, in a lot of the work that's coming out of that. So mm-hmm. I'm definitely very interested in learning more about it and making sure that I can communicate that to students that are interested in it too. Brilliant. So I'm going to be mainly speaking about a lot of this in terms of communication between work colleagues. So a lot of it's relevant to the workplace just because that's where a lot of this research is coming out of. But also some points will be relevant to communicating with your friends. So that's really fun. So as you hinted at there, we'll mostly be focusing on the research around communicating digitally Mm -hmm. because the interest in this research has really peaked since the pandemic. It's so much more relevant to so many of us because we now use that communication day to day. But if we go slightly further back, Mm -hmm. so before digital communication has really changed the way we communicate to one another. How do people use to research communication? Yeah, that's really interesting because this is a space that hasn't just suddenly appeared out of Mm -hmm. nowhere. Obviously, there's been a rise in research since COVID, but communication research goes back to, you know, even the 1960s. So at that kind of time in the first half of the 1900s, the mid 1900s, a lot of research was interested in comparing two different communication patterns, particularly in the workplace. Mm -hmm. So research was interested in looking at how hierarchical structures of communication. So in the workplace, this would be where every worker was allowed to communicate directly with their manager. So communication would work its way up and Mm -hmm. then it'd get filtered back down again. Mm -hmm. And comparing this against a more networked structure Mm -hmm. in the workplace. So this is where people in companies are allowed to go directly and talk to whoever they need to, to get the information Mm -hmm. that they need. And they basically were interested in looking at this in relation to two important factors. So how productive people were in the workplace Mm -hmm. and also a sense of morale. So, you know, how did people buy into this approach and how good did it make workers feel? Mm -hmm. So in terms of performance, what you typically would see across research is that a centralised approach where you're kind of working hierarchically, Mm -hmm. this would better performance on simple tasks at work. And this is meant to be most effective when you have perhaps one person that holds all of the answers. Mm -hmm. So if you can just go directly to your manager and they have the answer, then that's going to work really well for you. Mm -hmm. But of course, this is quite rare in most businesses because we all have our different specialisms. In contrast, a networked approach where you can talk to whoever you want can lead to better performance on more complicated tasks because of this ability to go to who you think knows the answer. And that could be anyone from across the business. And in terms of morale, how people feel about these approaches. So while a networked approach is more effective in terms of productivity for those harder tasks, Mm -hmm. it also creates a more democratic vibe in a workplace. It's associated with empowerment. People have higher morale in the workplace and greater buy-in. So they like the way that their companies are being managed, which is really great. 
And a lot of companies now are in the modern day are kind of steering towards this more networked approach, this sense of autonomy over their work. Yes, yes. I remember I've come across this company called Valve. Yes, I have heard of them. Obviously, we do not have any affiliation with them, but Mm. they're an example of a kind of quite a modern company that has made this networked approach kind of central to how they work. And what I thought was really interesting about them is that they empower their employees Mm -hmm. through a structure that they call a flatland. So they really emphasize that, like, we do not have a hierarchical structure. And to drive that point home even further, their employees' desks have little wheels on them so they can physically move around the office, really just kind of emphasizing that, you know, whoever you need to go and talk to and however you do that quickest, like we are empowering you to do that. Yeah, I think that's that's a really clear example of how that research might have kind of driven changes in industry as well. Yeah. And how space is designed because you don't have a fixed desk that is really far away from perhaps the people you work with. Mm -hmm. And that might change over time who you're working with. You can arrange yourselves in any configuration that you want. And that's going to enhance productivity because the people that you need to speak to are going to be right next to you. You can design the layout yourself, which is really cool, I think. Mm -hmm. This kind of pattern that we saw in traditional communication literature, looking at hierarchy versus network is, you know, really interesting. But what I think is perhaps even more interesting and relevant to this debate is that this rise in hybrid working that we're seeing in many professions following the pandemic Mm -hmm. and as a consequence of that digital communication, because that just comes with needing to work online. Mm-hmm. I think what that does is it represents quite a dramatic and widespread shift from having a hierarchical structure in a workplace. So having more of a networked structure, adding in, of course, this whole new technological dimension, which has many advantages and disadvantages that we'll be talking about. But I think that's why there's so much interest in this today, because it's, it's really changed the landscape of communication. Yes, exactly. So communicating online essentially now is the norm. Mm-hmm. That is just the way a lot of us work. And I think it's unlikely that we'll ever go back to kind of pre-pandemic of not communicating online to this extent. Yeah, and that's exactly what we see. So when large companies and people are surveyed post-pandemic, what you tend to see is that there's been a massive increase even now still to this day in hybrid working. So in the US workforce, you see an increase of 58% of the workforce engaging in hybrid working. And again, that's a similar pattern for the UK workforce, a little bit less, around 24%. And workers are spending an average of 20 hours a week using digital communication tools to need to facilitate this shift, which is a lot of your working hours. That's half of the working hours, isn't it? It's a lot. And kind of within that, you see that email is still the most commonly used technique or tool to communicate online. But this is closely followed by things like having one-to-one audio calls, using instant message and even text message in the workplace Mm -hmm. as well. And three in four office workers also are found to use group video conferencing at least once a week. And 63% use group phone calls for meetings as well. So audio only. So yeah, very, very prevalent use of digital communication technology Mm -hmm. in the workplace. Yeah. And I think the fact that even some of these newer forms of digital communication, so, you know, things that were essentially introduced post email, Mm -hmm. have been taken up so quickly or relatively quickly and so extensively that really shows how the pandemic has sped up this change in how we communicate but it must have kind of social and psychological implications you know changing the way we communicate so drastically so what does the science say how has digital communication changed the way we talk to each other? Yeah, so I think there are quite a few examples in research around how online communication using technology has been able to enhance our communication abilities. Mm -hmm. 
in various ways. So I think, first of all, we find that we're able to communicate a lot more efficiently now. So when surveyed, 71% of people find that informal and really concise messaging channels, so Mm -hmm. think things like Teams, Skype, Discord, these things are found to help people work more productively and efficiently, Mm -hmm. just how individuals perceive their ability to work. One really interesting finding is that the average Slack message is responded to in a matter of minutes, whereas the average email is responded to in two days. So think of how quickly we are speeding up Mm -hmm. that back and forth between workers. It's quite Mm -hmm. something. We also find that technology enhances communication and can also improve productivity for a number of reasons. So one of those is that it improves our flexibility Mm -hmm. within the workplace. So 57% of people when surveyed feel that online working allows greater flexibility and allows autonomy over how you plan your day. Mm -hmm. And it also provides people with an opportunity to work wherever they want to. So people have geographical flexibility, which has been found to influence productivity. So studies find a 4.4 increase in work output under a work from anywhere structure versus work from home. So that's comparing not even our traditional in the office, you know, setting, but work from anywhere versus just working from home. And that is associated with an increase in effort as well. And some of the reasons behind that could be that, you know, some of these non-monetary benefits that you see in the workplace can make people, you know, feel more motivated Mm -hmm. and, you know, want to put more into their work because they feel that this sense of autonomy it creates, which we know is so good for job satisfaction and and loads of other important outcomes. Yes, comes back to the self-determination theory. Exactly. Another reason why online communication and technology can improve productivity is that it can increase information diversity. And what we mean by this is that it enables workers to gather information on a variety of different topics and also from a variety of different sources. And that is found to increase productivity because it is key in helping you not only make more informed decisions, but also solve really difficult problems and come up with more innovative solutions. Mm -hmm. So it's just going to be really handy in helping you get to that problem solving quicker. Yes, absolutely. I think another really important aspect to talk about here is how digital communication can be really great for accessibility Mm -hmm. in the workplace. So one of the populations that has been studied quite a lot here is neurodivergent professionals and neurodivergent workers. So that might be people with autism, ADHD, so attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, Mm -hmm. or things like learning disabilities, you know, things like dyslexia and a host of other things. But even things like psychosocial disabilities, so, you know, depression, anxiety, really a host of things people might be dealing with that all of them can be helped by communicating online. Mm -hmm. And this can happen because, for one, digital communication is more flexible and people can really adapt it to the way they work well and the way their brain works. So, Mm -hmm. you know, just the fact that you have say over how loud something is, you can can adjust the volume, you can put yourself on mute, you can adjust brightness of your setup. So all of those things might help people tailor their workplace to the way that they work best, enhancing accessibility. Another way this helps is it gives people multiple different ways to contribute to the conversation or to a project. You know, they can pitch in via text, they can speak, they can, I don't know, draw, depending on what what kind of work they're doing. But again, that can be really helpful because not all of us communicate in the same ways. Yeah, not everyone wants to chip in verbally, right? Mm -hmm. There are other ways you can be involved in a conversation. Exactly. A further way of enhancing accessibility is things like audio captioning or Mm -hmm. auto transcripts that are really popular now and are just kind of part of the everyday. Yeah. Or things like, you know, being able to record meetings 
and maybe take a break if you need to and then mm -hmm. come back to those meetings and process them and work when you can essentially. So yeah, a lot of the things that can really help make workplaces more accessible for a broader range of people. Yeah, definitely. But I think it's also important for us to recognise that online communication has also introduced new challenges for people that are neurodivergent and in many ways has potentially also made it slightly harder for them to communicate. Mm -hmm. So I guess you could also think that there are perhaps more distractions on screen, mm -hmm. things like notifications pinging off, having mm -hmm. multiple browser web pages open and none of those are present in person, right? Mm -hmm. You can really focus mm -hmm. a lot more on what is going on in that situation. It can also be slightly more challenging to decipher social cues and mm -hmm. nonverbal behavior online. And that's mm -hmm. something we'll talk about a little bit more in a minute. But particularly if you're neurodivergent and you struggle with that, then it can emphasize and make that yeah. even harder for you online. And also an increase in productivity can be met with a reduction in well-being if you're really exhausted from having to do these things mm -hmm. like prevent mm -hmm. distraction, decipher those social cues. Yeah. So it's definitely not a perfect solution, although we can see that hopefully in the future we can keep working on that and making it easier for people and figuring out how to reduce some of those negative yes. effects. And of course, I mean, this is all based on data, but we don't ourselves necessarily have the experience. Yeah. So maybe if you're listening and you are neurodivergent yourself, mm. maybe let us know. Yeah. Let us know how, how this has been for you. For you. Okay then, so having reviewed bits and bobs of the science around this, mm -hmm. let's move on to debatable, yes. slightly meatier section today, where we discuss some of the open questions and points of contention in this space. Yeah. And I think to start off with, a really obvious question would be, does online communication work equally as well as in-person communication? So is communicating online a perfect substitute for talking to someone face-to-face? -face? This is really interesting and something that a lot of research has started to focus on. One quote that I personally really like that I think sums up this issue and potentially some of the problems with communicating online comes from George Bernard Shaw, who is a Nobel Prize winning playwright and also social critic, which says that the single biggest problem in communication is the illusion that it has taken place. And I think that captures the concern nicely yes. because I think a lot of us sometimes can struggle with this, right? Yes. I mean, I think it is worth acknowledging this goes for both in-person and digital communication. Yeah. So you know, we are prefacing this whole debate by saying even in-person communication is obviously not always flawless exactly. and perfect. Yeah. But online communication comes with so many additional challenges mm -hmm. and so can be even more difficult for people. So what we find is that in research, we can be really poor senders and receivers of information. Miscommunication is really common particularly when we're trying to do things like communicate emotion or feeling. Mm -hmm. So like the tone of a message. Mm -hmm. I know this is something that I've experienced and I'm sure a lot of us have. <laughs> so sometimes I'll send a text message and I think I've come across as sounding super blunt mm -hmm. when actually I'm like perfectly happy. <laughs> and the message had like no undertone of anything yes. that, you know, perhaps someone else might perceive mm -hmm. it to be or you're just worried that it comes across that For way. Sure. Or perhaps you've tried to be sarcastic and it hasn't landed very well. I think we've all noticed that tone doesn't travel super well over text. Yeah, absolutely. And then if we have all got experience of that in personal mm. communication, does that happen in the workplace as well? Yeah, it definitely does. So nearly half of workers report their productivity and job satisfaction being affected by inefficient communication. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely a, a real world issue. And formulating messages online can be super stressful for people. So 42% of workers, when surveyed, experience stress from trying to form responses that convey the right tone that they're mm -hmm. trying to get across. And also people experience stress from trying to decipher the tone from others. So they're trying to figure out what people are saying, and that can be stressful too. Almost 
all workers when surveyed felt the need to add something extra mm-hmm. into their messages to clarify their tone. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe additional sentences, a few exclamation marks, some emojis, you know, something to make themselves perhaps seem a bit happier or, you know. Oh, haven't we all added a bunch of exclamation points to an email just to be yes. like, I'm actually happy about this. That is me all the time. <laughs> Every sentence, exclamation point. Like, Absolutely. We're yes. all so guilty of that. <laughs> but the thing is, sometimes those concerns are actually justified. Yeah. Because the vast majority of workers, again, when surveyed, report that they have had their messages misconstrued sometimes mm-hmm. in digital communication. And about a fifth say that that has caused them to either get some sort of negative feedback from their co-workers, their yeah. boss. Sometimes you can even get kind of demoted or even fired in extreme yeah. cases. So yeah, it is, I guess, a worthy consideration. You know, people are not worried about this kind of unnecessarily. Yeah, the stakes are high. Obviously not to scare anyone, but the data do show that actually workers spend an incredible amount of time worrying about the potential to be misunderstood. And uh, some estimates say that this might cost US businesses alone over $120 billion each year. So a massive loss to productivity that we have to worry about being misconstrued online. That is so large. And research supports these concerns, right? So research in this area finds evidence of there being this communication gap. So how well you think you're communicating versus how well you actually are communicating. And this is in relation to so many different emotions that we try and send online. So sarcasm, seriousness, anger, Mm -hmm. sadness and humour, all of those show this communication gap. And specifically in this study I'm mentioning here, this is when looking at email versus something like the phone, where you've got your your voice to convey a message. Mm -hmm. And this is also really interestingly, irrespective of whether something like emojis or emoticons are used, which I think is interesting because you could imagine that using that would help to colour a message, you know, help you seem happier Mm -hmm. and make sure that, you know, I am happy. So (laughs) I'm using them and hopefully you believe that I am happy. And research finds this result to be a product of egocentrism, which in simple terms is our inability to detach ourselves from our own perspective when evaluating the perspective of someone else. So we just can't possibly imagine that our communication Mm -hmm. could be problematic. (laughs) Um, But actually, in real fact, people do struggle to, you know, understand what we've sent. Yeah, absolutely. Even though I found that point on emojis interesting because... In my mind, I think emojis can actually strengthen or like can help convey the tone of a message. And I think there is data to actually support this where emojis can strengthen the kind of intensity of of an emotional tone that a message is communicating. And research even finds that emojis can help communicate sarcasm, Mm. which I think is one that is tenuously difficult to, to get across, right? But equally, we have research saying that emojis while they can intensify the tone of the message, they rarely kind of completely turn around its meaning, which means that when they are appropriate for the context, they can actually be a really helpful tool to Mm -hmm. communicate more efficiently online. Yeah. And I think one thing to point out as well is a lot of this research is looking at things like emoticons. So this would be like, you know, just having a smiley face that is just like dot dot smile, you know, (laughs) whereas in more recent times are like emojis and gifts and things like this are developing. So they're not just, you know, basic emoticons, but they're real life avatars that move. And I imagine with advances in digital technology, these are going to be even more and more helpful in conveying things like emotion. So perhaps some of this research will start to reflect that soon, but I'm not sure at the moment. Mm -hmm. 
Research also finds, interestingly, that we're not only poor senders and receivers of information, but we're also not great at asking questions and getting the responses we desire. So research finds that we are much more likely to receive help from friends when asking face-to-face compared to any other communication channel that is online, irrespective of how rich the channel is. So how much it perhaps mimics real-life communication. So video, for example, would be really real, really rich, because you can see one another, Mm -hmm. you can see those non-verbal cues, whereas something like email wouldn't be super rich because it's just written text. But in this study, it didn't seem to matter. Right. And why might that be? So they did take a look at this kind of exploratory. It wasn't the main aim of the study, but they wanted to see what perhaps was making a difference by asking people why they thought that. Mm -hmm. The only main finding that came out was that people felt it was more awkward to say no face to face Mm -hmm. versus on any other channel. This definitely needs further testing, but I think that's quite interesting that people just don't want it's like almost like a norm around you know not wanting to say no to someone because perhaps helping is normative for them in that situation face to face however people fail to consider this when predicting how effective asking online will be so people don't think there will be any difference in how effective it is to ask online versus face to face but clearly there is Mm -hmm. so we drastically underestimate the power of asking in person okay so when asking for help do it in person if you can obviously And yeah, some other bits of data on how online communication might not be as effective. I think it's interesting how research finds that when we communicate digitally, we can also find some less engagement. So, you know, workers can Mm -hmm. be less engaged, perhaps because it is easier to disengage. You know, we've all turned off our camera in a meeting that was a bit too long. Mm -hmm. And also that it might sometimes be harder for teams to reach consensus. Yeah. So if you communicate digitally, it is just harder to agree to arrive to, you know, to a final destination. And that's from data comparing kind of email communication versus face to face. Yeah. So quite a limited form of digital communication, Mm -hmm. which perhaps might not hold for things like video. Yeah. Really important to recognise. And then besides online communication being easily misunderstood, what other potential negative effects might it have? What are the pitfalls of communicating digitally? So one of the main downsides that we see with online communication is something called video conference fatigue. Mm -hmm. Now this is defined as the degree to which people feel exhausted, tired or worn out as attributed to engaging in a video conference call. Mm -hmm. So this could be professional, so something like Teams, Zoom, Or personal, so something like FaceTime or a WhatsApp call. Mm -hmm. This was coined as Zoom fatigue during the pandemic. But I think we could also recognise that this is something ever present in our lives now due to just this normalisation of video communication and something that is perhaps sustained due to an increase of work from home for many people. Okay, so it kind of goes beyond Zoom is what you're saying. Yeah, exactly, definitely. And again, this is a reality for workers. So 98% of office workers when surveyed experience stress from group video conferences conferencing, mm-hmm. which polled is the most stressful form of communication. And a lot of workers also feel this increased sense of burnout as a result of communicating digitally. And this is also supported by research again. So studies conducted, this main one I'm mentioning here was conducted during the pandemic. And this study explored the occurrence of and the reasons for video conference fatigue. They looked at this through measurements, they took items and questionnaires from people, but they also interviewed them. So they collected mm-hmm. what would be known as qualitative data. Yes. You know, richer responses around what was happening here. In terms of measurement, this is looking at like hourly assessments across the working week from people working at home during mm-hmm. the pandemic. And what you see in terms of conference fatigue was that video conferences are associated with fatigue levels 
higher than you would typically expect at each time of the day, Mm -hmm. even after accounting for things like how much you'd worked in the past hour. And this effect occurred more often at more time points later in the day. So later Mm -hmm. calls, more likely to be fatigued. Yes, can relate. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) What I think is also interesting is that people were found to exhibit a fatiguing effect immediately after and sometimes even one hour after the call. Mm -hmm. So meeting duration has no impact on this. And total number of meetings also has no impact on this. So I think it's really interesting that when we think of fatigue generally, we Mm -hmm. think of this kind of accumulation. So, you know, I've worked a really long day. I've gone through the whole day. I'm encountering all these things that make me fatigued. And then at the end of the day, you're like, oh, God, that was that was a lot. But with online video conferencing, you see this effect immediately. And it doesn't matter how many of those meetings you had. So it's this very immediate effect that can even sustain for a little bit afterwards that I think is really surprising, perhaps. Yeah. And so video conference fatigue is obviously something that can have a real impact then and people are going to feel exhausted from this. So one big question, I suppose, is why does this happen? Well, people have obviously started looking into this since it is so relevant to so many people's lives. Mm. And a really nice framework laid out by communication researchers at Stanford Virtual Human Interaction Lab Mm -hmm. lays out four main reasons why video conferencing fatigue might happen. We'll link a nice article summarising all of them in the show notes if you are keen to read up on this more. But just to summarise them quickly, the first reason why it might happen is because during it, we experience excessive amounts of eye contact Mm. and our brains interpret that as really intense. So if you imagine a video call, someone's face appears to be quite big, which your brain interprets as if they were quite close to your face, which oftentimes in real life is associated with potentially dangerous situations or confrontational situations. And that essentially leads our brain to conclude, oh, maybe there's something to be kind of stressed about here, which leads to what we call hyper arousal. Essentially, it is intense to see people's faces in the way that we do in video calls. It is also quite stressful in some ways to see yourself during a video call. So researchers found that If you look at yourself in the mirror, which obviously is somewhat similar to a video call, you are more likely to then kind of judge your own appearance. And obviously you are more conscious of your appearance. And this data replicates in video calls themselves. So, for example, in Zoom or other video conferencing softwares, oftentimes there is a little square that shows you your own picture. And that research finds can be really stressful and can make us think about how we look and what we are doing more, which can in some cases lead to actually feeling more negatively as well. Mm. And interestingly, but perhaps not that surprisingly, that effect is stronger for women. Yeah. So women tend to evaluate our own image more when we see ourselves on video. A third way that video communication might lead to fatigue is that it keeps us really stationary. Yeah. So normally in conversation, we would move around, we'd move our you know, hands, we'd move our bodies. Maybe we'd get up and grab a coffee. We could do like a walking meeting. But if you have a setup for digital communication, you're probably not going to you know, move about yeah. as you're doing that. So research finds that when people are moving, they actually communicate better, they perform better, and they might even be more creative, which is all constrained in digital communication. And then finally, it is just cognitively, so mentally more exhausting to be communicating virtually due to all of the reasons we've just discussed. And then also due to the extra kind of hurdles we need to overcome. So that could be things like managing the technology around it, figuring out, you know, are you muted? Are you not? Um, (laughs) Maybe feeling that pressure to send extra cues so that you relay what you're saying and the tone of it 
more accurately. Or research even finds that we tend to speak 15% louder yeah. over video communication versus in person, yeah, which again, that. will be more tasking for you. I think it's probably also worth talking about how that shift to communication in digital formats is not entirely inclusive and can actually take a different toll depending on people's situation. Yeah. So not everyone necessarily has access to the necessary equipment, infrastructure, sometimes even skills to use all of these tools effectively, which could lead to more fatigue in certain groups over other groups. Yeah. So in fancy talk, this is called the digital divide and it refers to First, the first digital divide is about physical equipment, physical access. So does everyone have the same access to things like laptops, you know, monitors, speakers, headsets, anything you might need? And then the second digital divide, which has really only been looked into more recently, is about whether everyone has the same access to skills training maybe the motivation mm. and maybe knowing where and how to access help in order to use these tools efficiently yeah. so while everyone might have a laptop not saying that they do but generally access is less of a problem these days and there is more variability in terms of who knows where to get help who has access and skills yeah. to use these tools efficiently so yeah just that kind of inclusivity and accessibility point in terms of why conference fatigue might happen and for whom yeah exactly i think that's really important to acknowledge and i think there are potentially also some concerns around whether communicating via technology so communicating online versus meeting with one another in person may reduce some of this sense of workplace affiliation and belonging and connection due to not sharing the same physical space because obviously it can encourage work from home work from anywhere mm -hmm. as we've discussed and this is a broader debate and something that we have touched on in another episode including the four-day work week episode so head over there if you're interested in that because we cover some of this there yes, and give it a listen yeah still relevant in this space too okay we've debated that quite a bit now let's move on then to the final section of our podcast doable where we give some actionable steps based on the science we've just discussed yeah and i think one common problem that many people are likely to have and it's definitely a one that a lot of people around me seem to be experiencing is that they just feel like they're online all the time mm -hmm. from their working day through to the evening and i definitely feel like this a lot of the time too so I guess you could take the example of someone whose workplace has shifted predominantly to remote online working. Mm -hmm. The majority of their meetings are online now. And maybe they also have a lot of friends that are far away. And so their dominant mode of speaking to their friends is also online mm -hmm. using perhaps FaceTime of an evening. For this kind of person, is there anything that they can do to feel less fatigued by constant screen time? Yes. So... As we discussed previously, some of the reasons why we might get fatigued, those same researchers from Stanford also suggest some of the solutions for getting around it. Yeah. So for the first point of excessive eye contact or that kind of intensity, it can be really helpful to take your video calls out of full screen mode and reduce the size of the window you are looking at. That will make other people's faces smaller, which your brain will interpret as them being further away yeah. and it being all less threatening, hence less stressful. In terms of the second point about seeing yourself, adding to the cognitive load, we can hide kind of self-view. Mm. A lot of the platforms now offer this where that little square with your picture is just not visible to you. Yeah. However, that is not to say that you should be turning off your camera mm. because there is good evidence showing that by having your webcam turned off, it reduces the amount you participate in the meetings and it doesn't actually help you feeling less fatigued mm. by those meetings. So if there isn't actually any benefit to the fatigue element, but 
turning your camera off can reduce how connected you feel to your group and how much you participate in it Mm. this might just not be a a great idea so we just suggest you turn off you seeing yourself but not other people being able to see you in terms of the third and fourth point about moving around and video meetings generally being quite exhausting maybe ask yourself can a video call be a phone call Mm. this one might be more likely to be relevant in personal communication so you don't necessarily have say in whether a work call can happen on a different platform Mm. but with your friends you might be able to have that say there'll be added benefits to your mood to your well-being if you take that call into nature we've discussed that previously and by being able to be on a phone call so voice call rather than video call this will allow you to move around more Mm -hmm. more freely and also remove all of that thinking about oh What am I looking like? What is this person's face looking like? What are they saying? And will only allow you to focus on what they're actually saying verbally. So that could be an all round good option. Also try and schedule some breaks, even micro breaks, kind of up to 10 minutes so that you can recharge both mentally and physically during sequential video meetings. Mm, Yeah, that can be found to be really effective. I think just some further points outside of that kind of framework that they were using at Stanford. Again, if you have control and this is easier with peer communication with your friends, try to move your meetings perhaps earlier in the day. Obviously, if you can do this in the workplace, brilliant, but not everyone has the control over their meeting schedule. So think about calling that friend or having that meeting before work versus after work. If you're speaking to a friend, try to do that earlier during the weekend because research finds that this has less of an impact on fatigue if it's earlier Mm. in the day. At work, I think it can be useful, as again, we touched on in a previous episode, to try and clarify some of the norms perhaps around camera, mic, chat use. Because firstly, this will remove some of that cognitive load, like that thinking just around having to decipher what is normal here. You know, is it going to be weird if I use the chat or are people Mm -hmm. quite okay with that? This will also reduce self-monitoring and awareness of your behaviour, which is just exhausting again. And also as an extra bonus, because we know that having really clear norms promotes group cohesion, which we know buffers against fatigue and also enhances productivity. So you're going to be more engaged and get more out of that meeting. What I'm taking away from this is that we should start FaceTiming each other earlier on in the day or on weekends. We should. Practice what we preach. (laughs) (laughs) So as we're wrapping up today's episode all about digital communication, let's summarise what we've just talked about. Yeah. So a lot of this boils down to the fact that while online communication can improve efficiency, flexibility and also accessibility, that can come at the expense of accuracy and also our well-being. So the goal is really to try and uncover these ways that we can mitigate against these side effects that don't exist with in-person communication, typically by trying to mimic it somehow. Mm -hmm. So in many cases, obviously, your communication mode still needs to be context appropriate and feasible given your situation. Telephone communication can can often be thought of as this kind of happy medium between written communication and video conferencing. So surveys also seem to agree with this. The mobile phone is rated as the most effective method of communication by office workers, hybrid workers and remote workers. So you've got those paraverbal audio cues that perhaps allow you to communicate emotion and tone. So getting rid of some of that miscommunication and in contrast to video communication you can be on the move so this will increase your mobility you can get outside see some sunlight some greenery and it will also reduce that cognitive load which is associated with self-monitoring and just technology use in general. Mm -hmm. As a reminder of that research for asking for help if you're in a situation where you need to ask for someone's help don't underestimate the power of doing so in person if that's an option. If that's not an option for whatever reason then try and use richer communication mediums 
like video or audio versus more plain restricted versions like text or email. Yeah. And if you're needing to use video conferencing, we've spoken a lot about this. And I think with time, technology will hopefully try and improve some of it for us by making it realistic in various ways. So even now we see developments in online Mm socialising. So there are applications or kind of web programmes such as Gavatown, which allow you to have avatars that meet one another in person. And as people move closer, their mics turn on. Mm. So it mimics that kind of pattern of walking around in socialising. I know I've been to a few online conferences that Mm -hmm. used that which is an interesting experience. (laughs) And in online working, companies such as Microsoft are coming up with new designs all the time as to how they can configure their office space so that hybrid meetings can mimic real world meetings in various ways. There's a really interesting article about this, which I'll post in the show notes below, and that shows all the different things that they're currently doing. But for now, what you can do is to try and change the way you interact with your technology. So things we've already mentioned, such as screen size, self-view, and try and set your own boundaries around communication to try and protect your well-being. So think about meeting times, group norms, changing your location, and also scheduling breaks. If you are restricted to using text-based communication, do try and make that as rich as you can. So you can make use of tools like emojis, GIFs, images, as appropriate, of course, to try and mimic as much of the in-person communication as possible. While doing this might not necessarily guarantee avoiding misunderstanding, it is unlikely to harm your cause. Yeah, definitely. Brilliant. Okay, so I think there's loads for us to work with there. Hopefully that was helpful for everyone listening. If you're getting brighter from this podcast, then make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Once you're there, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a review of anywhere up to five stars. If you have any feedback, questions, or suggestions for future episodes, or you're just nosy and want to put faces to the names, you can find us on all of our socials at GetBrighterPod. And if you're a bit more old school, we also check our emails at getbrighterpod at gmail.com. We'd like to thank the Southwest Doctoral Training Partnership for supporting this podcast. And to finish off with our disclaimer, the Getting Brighter podcast is separate from our research and teaching roles at our respective universities. However, it is part of our shared passion for communicating science in an accessible and enjoyable way. Any advice given does not consider your unique individual circumstances, and we encourage you to seek professional guidance before making any significant lifestyle changes. Bye Bye, team. See you next next time. time.